Hey, hey. So, I just want to say, as we do an intro for, for this next episode, if you manage to listen to the entirety of the last episode, <laughs> assuming that it comes out in the order that we're recording it, um, you did incredibly well, because that was a big episode. So this episode is not going to be anywhere near as big. We're trying to, going to try and get back to our, our sort of 25 to 30 minute timeline. And today, though, we are tackling some pretty heavy topics. Uh, straight off the bat... There's been a video circling, and I've seen it in a few big groups, particularly things like Blokes Advice and, and a few others, uh, talking about real estate agents and how they're driving up the price of rent, and, and we'll get into that and discuss that. And uh, then we're going to get into one of my favorite topics, which is smoking meats, but not the meat part of it so much as the equipment that you need to actually do uh, a half-decent job. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsors. Ready to sell your home? Don't make the rookie mistake of jumping in blind. The first step on your journey is critical. Research. You need to know what your house is really worth to get the best deal. And that's where checkmyhouseprice.com.au comes in. With a free house price report, you'll get all the juicy market intel, recent sales data, and other must-have info to help you win big when selling your home. Don't gamble on your home's worth. Make checkmyhouseprice.com.au the first step in your successful selling journey. Visit us today and get your free house price report. All right, JH, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Because this is a corker. This is. Are real estate agents driving up rents? And go. (laughs) All right, so this question, we we thought we should really answer this question because there's there's a video that's doing the rounds that shows a a gentleman uh, who is talking about his rent being driven up. And on this video, he's telling the story of how the real estate agent has said, look, we've, we've got to lift the rent and the owner wants to lift the rent. And so the guy has a good relationship with the owner and he rings the owner and says, hey, what's, what's the go with this rent increase? And the owner turns around and says, I didn't want a rent increase. I said no more rent increases to the agent. And so the owner says to him, look, this is, this is all dodgy. What I want you to do, leave me on speakerphone, go in and confront the real estate agent and say, hey, what the hell is going on? Why is this rent increase happening? So the guy does this and he goes in and he, he says to the real estate agent, hey, what's what's the go? Why is my rent being increased by so much? And, and it was a big increase. It was a $350 a week increase. So it was, it was pretty significant. And the real estate agent turns around on cue and says, oh, the owner instructed us to increase it. And the owner on speakerphone apparently turns around or allegedly turns around and goes, that's BS. I didn't, I didn't ask for that, etc." And, and the moral of the story was the agent was deliberately trying to raise the rental price, mm-hmm. right, without the say-so of the owner or, or and so forth. And the... 
the guy in the video who's presenting this information is basically turning around saying real estate agents are driving up the, the prices of rent and they're the reason that we've got a housing crisis and, and this is the reason that rental, rents are, in, um, are going through the roof and so forth. So let's, let's address that. Like Now that you've got the background, let's address that. First and foremost, that looked to me like it was a commercial property. He was yeah, walking. That, yeah, he, he he was walking around in a big Titan shed, and there was a truck. Yes, and when I mean a truck, like, like a big truck. Well, it wasn't a not not a Mack truck, but like not a, a Mack truck. I big, would say it was with more a, a like Pantech a box on the back, like a lorry kind of deal. Yeah, it yep. was like your um your, your council truck, where mm. you know it can put a small you know, excavator or digger on the back and yep. Bob's your uncle kind of deal. Yeah. And, and like he was talking about it, the price for his workshop and things like that. So there, there's a lot of clues there that suggest it's commercial. Now, first and foremost, commercial real estate, even talking like I deal, my experience, my dealings is, is exclusively in residential. Talking to my residential real estate clients, agents, mates, the whole works, they look at me and go, commercial is the wild west still yeah. right so let's just separate that what he's talking about based on the information that we could glean from that video does not apply to residential because there's rules and legislation around residential now what actually happens with rent raises so and this is something look we've we've had to deal with it ourselves mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're intimately aware, plus, you know, obviously being someone who's worked in the industry for as long as I have, I'm, I'm aware of what happens. So as a, as a lease starts to come to the end, now, a good real estate agent will typically offer a new lease three months before the end of the current one to the tenants if you've been good tenants. They are obligated to do a review of what rental prices for similar property are in the area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so based on what other properties of similar type and similar kind of features, so, you know, like say it's four bed, two bath and, and on a 600 square block in reasonable condition, they're going to look at and go, what other properties that are very much aligned and similar to that, what have they been rented for in the recent time? What have they been advertised for? What have they been rented for? And that's going to create a rental appraisal that rental appraisal is then going to be handed to the owner with a recommendation from the agent. Yep. The owner gets to choose whether or not they follow the recommendation of the agent, right? Now, typically speaking, and and this is, it's not like real estate sales in the sense that, you know, a real estate agent sells a property and they get, say, 2% of the property price, we'll call 2% as an average. So, if it's if it's a, a seven hundred thousand dollar property, two percent of seven hundred thousand is fourteen grand. Mm-hmm. Nice chunk of change, right? In residential real estate, uh, sorry, in in property management and rentals, they're collecting five to seven percent of the rent. Mm-hmm. So what that means is if you're paying five hundred dollars a week, they're getting thirty five, maybe forty dollars a week. Like I'm not doing the yeah. maths off the top of my head. It's not bank breaking. It's not huge. And like yeah, okay, over the course of twelve months, it's fifteen hundred dollars. Right, give or take. We're we're talking rough figures here. But if they turn around and say, let's increase the rent by fifty dollars a week, their increase in the share of that fifty dollars a week is only five, six, seven percent. 
So at 5%, it's $2.50 a week. It's not actually worth the hassle and aggravation for them to just jack it up by $50 a week just for shits and gigs, mm. right? For the fun of it. It's not worth it. So... Because what? at the end of the day, you, they don't want empty properties. They don't want empty properties, right? Um, because, like, the, this is the other thing that needs to be kept in, in mind. If a property sits empty, let's say a $500 property, $500 a week property, sits empty. If that sits empty for four weeks, that's $2,000 that that investor has lost mm. and that that real estate agent has lost their, you know, 5% off. So they've lost 40 bucks. Right, not a huge deal for them, but for the the investor who owns the property, um, they've lost, you know, two grand. Now, and you've also just had a real estate agent not actually leasing something that you've got a contract with, so you're obviously going to start that, looking for some leasing fees and stuff like that. So really, like I'm saying, there's two grand in miss rent. It's closer to two and a half grand when you take into account the real estate agent's fees for advertising the property, reletting fee, all that kind of jazz. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, and it may be a little bit more. So, for the investor, if they're looking at a fifty dollar a rent a week rent increase, right? They like if if that property ends up being vacant for four weeks, it's wiped out that rental increase. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's economies of scale happening here, or not economies of scale, sorry, but market economics that are happening here. At the same time, the problem that we have in certain states in Australia, and Queensland is a big one right now, is we have more demand than we do supply. Mm-hmm. So when these rental appraisals are done, rents are being jacked up significantly because there's more people wanting to rent properties in these areas than what there are properties to rent. So the market, once again, sets the price. It, yeah. People are applying to rent the property and are offering over what the rental amount is. Which means that anyone that's around is actually going to have their stuff increased when they go to rent. the next rental appraisal. That's right. right. And the value proposition, so from from an investor's point of view, they've just had 10 interest rate rises in a row. Yeah. Okay. So with 10, and and look, I I get it. At the time of, of recording this episode, there's been one month or, or the first this is the first month out of the last 10 where they've gone yeah we're not we're not doing a rise this month there could be more coming for all we know there might not be well there will be more coming because it's the, the future the, but look, who <laughs> knows i mean yeah but in the short term i'm talking yeah right so there's a whole heap of investors who are coming off a fixed rate mm-hmm. and going into a variable as well yeah okay so you've got a situation where their costs of maintaining the property are skyrocketing Demand for the properties are skyrocketing. Rents are skyrocketing as well. So if the real estate agent goes to them and the real estate agent does their job, which is, by the way, their legal responsibility, and provides them with a rental appraisal at the end of the lease and says, hey, this is what other properties of similar like are going for, that investor is going to turn around and go, okay, let's bump the rent up. But they don't have to. They they don't don't have have to. to. And there's a lot that don't. In all fairness, there's a lot that don't. Investors, in my opinion, are unfairly targeted in the media and and by renters and and that sort of thing as well. The one thing that I have found personally is the investors that I find that are the ones that do jack it up quite significantly at each thing is either A, they want to get rid of you or it's a matter of that 
they're new. Yeah. That they've never rented a property. Like they've had an investment property, but they may not have ever like had a uh, it's been a family member who's lived I mean, don't, there don't or wrong. something like yeah. that where they're new to the whole thing. So they're thinking of that the real estate agent's going, this is what it needs to be when when a lot of the time they can turn around and go, that's nice, but we're quite happy for and, a $10 and look, raise because a, they're, also, good, they're good tenants. That's it. And there's there's also those that are quite simply just trying to recoup funds that they're losing and things like yeah. that because negative gearing is great if you've got the money to lose and then negative gear off your tax. Yeah. Right? You've still got to have the money to spend in order to get it back on tax. Yeah. So you've got to be in that position. So, you know, but I think the... Investors have a target on their back right now because we're in a rental crisis and we're in a housing crisis. Yeah. Because they're seen as greedy, even though... They're seen as greedy. It's not that they're greedy, they're just... Look, let's... They're they're fortunate enough that they've got that money in order to... But at the same time, that if we didn't have investors, we wouldn't have rental properties... Oh, God, the the housing crisis... Would be Would be apocalyptic. Yeah. Right, so for, for those who are unaware... The, the Australian government has largely relied on private investment to solve the housing supply problem. We've talked about this before. In Australia, we have a supply and demand problem. We do not have supply to meet demand. We do not have enough houses in the areas people want to live in order to house people. So what has happened is between the banking system and the government, rather than the government stepping in going, we're going to build a whole bunch of houses for people, for everybody, not just low-income earners, but for everybody who wants to own a house. We're going to build it, we're going to front it, and then we're going to sell those houses, which, by the way, would be a good money spinner based on you know all of the income taxes, everything like that associated with building a house, right? Instead of doing that, they've turned around and gone, we're going to let the private sector look after this housing problem. And so the private sector's gone, okay, cool, we'll buy that land from the government, and we're going to develop it. And we're going to build it, right? But here's what most people don't know. In order for a developer and a builder to get finance and get the money required to build the properties in order to solve our supply problem, they have to sell a certain percentage of properties off the plan. So before, often before the, the council has even given approval, They've got to be taking deposits. Before a single slab is laid, they've got to have sold a certain percentage. And and off the top of my head, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, and I would love to get one of our, our property development contacts on to have a chat with us about this, but I believe they've got to have pre-sold 25% of a development off the plan. So a quarter of the houses have to that be is sold a lot. off the plan and committed to with deposits paid before a bank will come along and finance that development, right? Now, the only people, or not the only, but the majority of people who buy off the plan are investors, people willing to take the risk and speculate that the property will be worth more Mm. or will generate more revenue, right, through rental income and that, than what the the mortgage is worth, or they're willing to take advantage of negative gearing, and so they're gonna they're willing to take a loss to build the house, knowing they'll get it back on tax, mm. which means they're cashed up individuals. In order for builders to build more houses to solve our supply and demand problem, because we don't have enough houses. Yeah, whereas government should be stepping in, going, we're going to see this land here, we're going to buy it. 
Well, the government owns a lot of that well, land. It's that's crown true. land in a lot of regards. That's true. But there is still people, you know, like I know yeah. here in the Redlands, because that's where we are in, yep. in sunny Queensland, the Redlands uh, has recently had the state government step in and say, you're not building enough. Um, yeah, your, your urban planning sucks. Uh, we're taking over. Yeah, we're taking yeah. over. And, and look. So I, realistically, if they were to do it the smart way, uh, they should really go, we're taking over, we're going to buy, we're going to construct, we're going to do all of that and then so they're, that they're the we ones have in somewhere. To finance. They could, they could buy, construct and then finance those properties. Yeah. Right? Because it, and, and there's schemes that could happen and they're not doing it. And look, I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be brutally honest here. I'm a swinging voter. I vote based on policy at each election. I'm not a diehard liberal. I'm not diehard Labor. I'm not diehard anybody. I'm. That's what pretty are, common with our generation. Look, it's it, what's it what's most fitting for us. When well, what what do we believe is right and yeah. what will fix the problems and and that's within know, our life. At that's that that's stage. within our life and so forth. And I'm 42 years old. I'm the oldest millennial. I was born in 1981. So old. I know, right? But this Labor government at a federal level is the first Labor government that I can remember, I might be wrong, but that I can remember who has actively looked at addressing the housing supply problem by funding the build of more dwellings. Yes, but at the moment they're doing it for more low income. They are. Whereas there's a lot of families out there who are working hard and doing all the rest of it going, we want a house. We we want a mortgage. Yeah. We want to partake in this, but we just can't get it, so we have to rent. Absolutely. So and so and so that pressure. Getting back to the key question for this particular part, because I'm looking at the time and realizing we've had a really good chat about this, but we're also over time. A real estate agent's driving up rents. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're doing their jobs, but the market is driving it up. Because there is a fundamental lack supply of supply and demand is ruling is, the is roost ruling as the opposed roost, particularly to in Queensland, and the government has failed. They have literally handballed the the housing issue in inverted commas off to the private sector, and the private sector are hamstrung by banking regulations and banking demands in order to be able to finance bills. If we, if the private sector could effectively finance bills without having to pre-sell, we would have a, a bucket load more houses, assuming, assuming they can get the supplies, because there is a supply issue in terms of getting the construction materials at the moment. That's off the back of the war in the Ukraine. Mm. That is starting to ease. But if they could get the funding without having to jump through so many hoops, and not only that, this is very, very quickly as a finishing thought. Go and have a look. Go and ask your local council representative or your state representative what the fees, the council fees, the operational works fees, and the various council and state taxes are on a new construction. You will be blown away. Flabbergasted. I remember I was I was selling property 10 years ago, right? And at the time, operational works in Logan could be as high as $60,000 a block. That's stupid. Right? So you had to pay. Like, you, you'd be buying a block back then for $250,000 or less, and 60000 of that was going to council just for them to connect up the plumbing 
and to put a curb on it. Per block, per block, not per estate, per block, per 450 square meter block. It's mental. So go and look at the state taxes, look at the council taxes and council charges as to what it costs to build, and you'll see why building a new property costs as much as it does. So really we need to put the pressure on the government to start government to ease up. Government needs to be held accountable yeah. for like their city. They're representing the people. That's the reason why the people, we vote them. But they cannot house the people due to gross mismanagement and horrific tax policy and, and fee policy. Yeah. Look, if there is a member of anywhere that would like to chime in and, you know... Hey, they're, in, they're invited to jump we, on the podcast anytime. We would anytime. be happy to have you on so that we can throw some um, questions your way and for you to actually explain them. It would it would be good. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see which rabbit holes we're going down in this episode. It's time for GTM. It's G-Thought Moment. It might be drink a whiskey, pot, work, smoking beer, podcast, story writing, treasure hunting, you name it. What's really great right here, singing, playing TV shows. As you can see, nothing's off limit. It's GTM. G-Thought Moment. GTM. What will be his next shiny object? GTM. It's time for this week's G-Thought Moment. It's JTM time. <laughs> it's smoking. It is. It is. So a little while back, a little while back, um, actually I needed it for work. Believe it or not, I needed to go and purchase a smoker for work because we were working with, with our friends at Smidge Wines and we were building marketing campaigns and content around pairing food with Smidge Wines. And we found it because Matt, Matt Wank, who's the winemaker, and by the way, just uh, we've mentioned Matt a couple of times. We will have him on the podcast. Um, he's the only winemaker in history to have had his wines featured in the world's top 100 wines for 10 years in a row. The guy is one of the best kept secrets in, in terms of wines in the world. Um, he, there's, if he doesn't know it about wine, it's probably not worth knowing just quietly. But we were doing some cool Side stuff tracked. with Matt. Sidetracked. Tangent. JTM inside of JTM. Um, and, but, you know, Matt's wines, so a lot of his reds, like his Shiraz and Montepulciano and, and his Cab Sav and things like that, they pair really well with barbecue, right? And I think part of it's the Italian sort of background in a number of them. Part of it's just, you know, the fact that they're growing in McLaren Vale, the, the grapes are and so forth and... and Look, to be honest, I've got to be honest with you, I've got no idea why, but it worked really, it really well. It just works. It just works. Don't Matt, question, just Matt, enjoy. Matt could explain it. I'm not the expert on this. But what it led to was that I needed to go out. You went down the rabbit hole. I went down the rabbit hole because I needed a smoker and a barbecue and, and all these sorts of things. And we'd had this old Weber that your your dad had actually just given us and, and gone, hey, like, I've got a spare Weber, you can have this. And this thing was 25 years old. <laughs> Keep going. It was, it was, yeah. I, I'm being generous and calling it 25 years old at the time. It was probably 35 or something like that. Like, it was, it was great. And it uh, did the job for a while. But Look, she went the distance. She, she was very distance. loved. But it wasn't suitable for creating the content that we needed to create. Um, as you can appreciate, you know, content, social media, marketing content, all that sort of stuff. We had to create uh, this you know, something that was visually appealing. So I went down the rabbit hole of smokers and 
looking at smokers that we could use to create meals that would fit with the wines and so on and so forth. And that's led to today's JTM, which is what's the best bang for buck smoker? Because let's be honest, I'm going to just pop this out there. We Mother's Day is coming up and there is a lot of mums out there that are like, you know what? I want a smoker. This is one idea that you can do for a mum. Did you I, not know this? I didn't. Are you serious? I'm serious. My best mate even... is just like, hold on. I come up to visit you. Jay needs to teach me how to do stuff. She works at Bunnings. There is mums out there Ooh. who genuinely want to know and want to have a smoker. My mind's blowing right now. Like I'm literally... I do, I, okay, okay so I'm do down. You, All right. Do you know, do you know we've, we've that you can actually... We've just doubled our audience segment. I'm down. Let's get into this. Do you know that you can actually do a really good pavlova in a smoker? I had no idea. Okay, I did not know this. All right. See, I'm worried about smoking meat, gents, and, and making sure that we've got perfect barbecue, making sure we're living up to the, the level that other dads expect of us and that we are absolutely nailing it. Oh, you're going there's, to have, there's a you're whole other world yeah, here that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, there's plenty of women out there who would be happy to come and okay. snipe the smoker. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's get into it. So, so I went down the rabbit hole of smokers, and I looked at you know the offset smoker where you're getting chunks of wood and chucking that in, and you've got a you've pretty much got to babysit an offset smoker to make sure it stays at the right temp. And with our work life and and how much we do work and the fact we've got four kids and all that sort of craziness, we went, I do not have the time to stand out there and babysit an offset smoker. So we went down the the line of a pellet smoker. I know that there is a a culture of diehard smokers out there in terms of guys who, who barbecue and smoke meats and that. Who are if it's off if it's not offset then it's a hipster invention and you're basically wearing a skirt to to pellet smoke, and I get there's that. nothing wrong with wearing skirts. Look, my legs look fantastic in a skirt. There is a lot of Scottish men out there who are just like you know what hundred percent. But what I also found is if you're going to do low and slow in the smoker and you're using a pellet smoker, you can load that up in the morning, set the temperature walk away and go and work and do your, your eight-hour day or whatever and come back at the end of the day and away you go. Pellet smokers are almost, not quite, but almost set and forget. And I think that any flack that you cop from the offset smoker diehards is well and truly worth it because you don't have to spend 14 hours sitting there watching an offset smoker and managing the temperature perfectly because technology will do it for you and I'm a fan of technology so I went down the avenue of pellet smokers now there's some great pellet smokers out there there's Traegers there's Yodas um, there's there's Pit Boss and there's a thousand in between and in the end what I found was that the Pit Boss Navigator 850 available from Bunnings again I will stress we're not sponsored by Bunnings I legitimately had to pay for this this smoker um, but the Pit Boss Navigator 850 was the best value for money. If you wanted the same cook space in, say, a Traeger, you were paying two to three times as much money. So the, the Pit Boss 850 was around about $800 at the time I bought it. I'm not sure what it is now. You can check it out on Bunnings, though, and, and they'll be able to tell you. Um, the Traeger equivalent was two and a half grand. And I was looking at it going, well, why would I go the Traeger? 
when I get the exact same cook space and size, and, and it's one of the largest cook spaces that you can get in terms of the cooking, the actual cooking surface, uh, why would I go the Traeger over the Pit Boss when it's so much more expensive? We've now had that smoker would be coming up on two and a half years. About that, yeah. I have easily done a hundred plus cooks on it. Oh, easy. Because one of the, the great things about the Pit Boss 850 is it's not just a smoker. It's also a flame grill. It's a, a roaster, so you can actually um, use it as a, as a basically you know flame roasting things. You can use it as a flame grill. You can use it as a traditional barbecue. Like it's, They call it an 8-in-1. The 8-in-1's a little bit of a stretch in terms of a claim, but its versatility cannot be denied. I have used it as a normal barbecue. I have used it as a low and slow smoker. I have used it to make jerky. I have used it to smoke hams, to make bacon and smoke bacon. I've used it to, to sear steaks, and it's been incredible. The only flip side or the only thing that I would say, hey, you know, make sure you're aware of this, you want to use good quality pellets for a number of reasons. Good quality pellets mean this, you know, you get a nice smoky flavor out of them, but also it means that they're pure wood in those in those pellets. You do not want pellets where they've used sand to flesh them out or to, to kind of cut costs because, of course, sand in flame will turn to glass, which will mess up your fire pot. And also with cheap pellets, regardless of whether they've got sand in them or not, uh, they, they tend to break down a little bit more easy. They're not as, as solid so that, But then they're not as economic either. They're not as economical, but they can also get caught up in the auger, which is the feeding mechanism that feeds it from, you know, the, you've got a hopper, which is what holds all your pellets, and it yeah. feeds through to the fire pot. Yeah. And it can get caught up in the auger, and you can end up with an auger fire. So the fire can actually go back. Oh, up that would that would be really good. Yeah, look, it? and and that's that's an expensive replacement. So, so I I have a question. Pellets. Yes, I have a, I have a question. So for those people that are out there that are genuinely wanting, like they're going, you know what, the universe is telling me that I should be buying this. I've listened yes. to a podcast. It's coming up in my uh, my social media feeds. I've spoken to friends. I mean, Bunnings really should I'm, pay us for I, this and sponsor us. I'm really, I'm wanting to know. Yeah. What are the specifications that you look at that you would actually go, okay, I need to weigh this up against this one? Okay. Those so, ones aren't in my budget, don't really care. Yeah. But what are the, like... Give me the things that you look at where you're like, yep, that's definitely a pro, Ugh, that's a con. Yep. So the, the biggest thing for me was cook space. Okay, so right? cook so space? So the, the actual the size of the cooking surface, right? So um, because, look, we're, we're a blended family. There's six of us. And, you know, then we've got your parents who come over. We might have your sisters here. We might have a couple of my friends here. We could be feeding 15, 20 people at a time. Yeah. And I was very much aware of that. Um, and, and even when it came down to just creating content for Smidge Wines, you know, when you're creating content, you don't want a small piece of meat to create the content. You want something big. You want something impressive, something that's eye-catching. So cook space was hugely important in my decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that the, the, the Pit Boss Navigator 850, bang for buck, had the, like it's 850-something square centimetres from memory. Like, I'm going off the top of my head. Yeah. At the same, like, the, the next closest, like, for example, in the Traeger or the Yoda or any of the other popular brands, which were, these were $1,400, $1,500. Dollars. 
they were at 450 square centimetres. Yeah. Right? So we're talking half the cook space for twice the price. Okay. So what else? Apart from cook space, what else? Temperature temperature control was huge. Okay. So temperature control. Temperature so control was huge. Which, um, like, what range? Like, I know that... The, so when you say temperature range... Mm-hmm. What are the – so did you go to recipes that you liked and was like, okay, this is more of something that I would be cooking, so therefore I should be looking at something that can I, hit I, I, that I mark? I didn't really go and look at that. What I went and looked at was – because, you know, if you look up a recipe online, you'll see them go, oh, you should do this – like, you, you should do this at, say, medium high or high temp. And I went, what's medium high, right? For smoking recipes – I went and looked at it and went, what, what is... Because most smoking recipes are low and slow. Yeah. Right? So what is um, the, the temperature that you need to get down to? Yeah. Right? Okay. So, so it's not up So it's to, not always it's up. down it's, to. It's down to at times. So right. if you're wanting to do low and slow, it's about what control you have at the lower end. If you want to do barbecue and flame grill and things like that, it's the temperature the at the high end. See, that is something that people probably were not aware of. No, and and I found like I think my pit boss goes up to um, about two hundred and seventy five degrees or two sixty somewhere like that Celsius. By the way, I'm talking Celsius, um, and and that's ample, right? Because what I liked about the pit boss is it has a heat shield. And you can close or open the vents on the heat shield. If you close it, then it goes into a smoking mode or a roasting mode where you can crank it up like an oven and, and that sort of thing. Or you can open it and it becomes flame grill. And so you've got direct heat as opposed to indirect heat. Yeah. And so the versatility really appealed to me. But then I went and I looked at the reviews and I paid specific attention to temperature control around reviews. If there were people that were saying about something, hey, this struggles to keep the temperature that I want it to keep, um, you know, temperature gauges break or things like that, then it kind of was a strike for me. Yeah. Because, the, I mean, you know the amount I work. I, I work long hours. I work, I'm in front of the computer doing, you know, online marketing, digital marketing, running companies, all that sort of jazz. So it was really, really important that I could set and forget this. Yeah. And I could I could put it on at eight AM in the morning and come back to it at six o'clock at night and the job was done. Yeah. Uh and so I needed to be able to trust that it could have that consistent temperature. And the pit boss has been amazing with that and the reviews were fairly solid with that. Um and so they, they were the things that I took into to account. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those three things, cook space, temperature range, but it's the bottom part of the range that if you're well, it's, wanting it's to smoke. Both. It's, it's wanting to know that it can handle the top and it can handle the bottom. Yeah. And obviously reviews, do your research, yeah. read them. They're there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, people giving feedback. And I've got to be honest, look, the price was important. Like when I looked at it and it was $800 for something that gave me twice the cook space of something that was twice the price and the reviews were good on it. I was like, this is a no-brainer. I'm yeah. all over that. Yeah. yeah. 